Good morning once again. It is always a great privilege to be together and a great blessing. We just continue to look forward to the things that God is going to do. I'm constantly amazed at the mighty hand of God and reminded of all the things that he has done, which then can excite us for all the things that he is going to do, because he is nowhere near finished. Amen? So here in John 13, we are continuing this study, of course, and as we continue, last week, as you know, as you know we finished up chapter 12, uh, looking at chapter 13 this week, starting with what has been called the upper room discourse, and uh, this is the beginning, and rather really an introduction even to these next five chapters now of John 13 through 17, and really the final times that Jesus gets to spend with his disciples before going to the cross. Um, some final instructions specifically. You know, it's, it's, it's for the disciples, but of course it's for us as followers of Jesus, and it's so beautiful to be able to see the expression of God's heart through these next five chapters. His, his heart unveiled to his disciples and to us. There's such simple words, such simple examples, but yet so deep and profound are these words that we will see over the next several weeks as we study through John 13 through chapter 17. But here in this passage today, we see the, the introduction to all of that. Even before Jesus begins to get into this teaching that he's going to do, he's going to teach them and give them great advice, great direction and instruction for ministry, for their future, and all the things that are coming. Uh, before even that, what does Jesus do here? He washes their feet. This is a preparation for their ministry. As, as Jesus does this work, he sets a beautiful example. So we begin here, verse 1. Before the feast of Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come and he should depart from them from this world to the Father, having loved his own. And we see the, the beginning here, there's, there's four different things we're going to see throughout. And the first here is love. Jesus is giving this great example, the final example of what he's going to demonstrate, and he wants his disciples to know, if you are going to have fruitful and effective ministry, it starts with love. And that's the example he set. So before the feast, and, and this is, we know this is the last days of Jesus, right? This is the upper room, they're together, they are celebrating the Passover, this eight-day feast of, of celebration here, and it, it goes on. I love all the feasts, and we've had opportunity to look at uh, a few of them and study through a few of them throughout John's gospel. And, and, and man, do the Jewish community know how to celebrate, right? And, and, and even uh, within our fellowship here, we have this family, the Schwartzes, who've, who've invited a couple of us, and, and I've been able to celebrate a couple of these feasts with them and understand a little bit more. And it, it's just a great community, great uh, uh, opportunity to learn and understand from these feasts of, of tradition and, and what God has done and then the hope that there is and what God is doing and how we connect the dots through Jesus. And that's what's happening here. 
It's not unlike any other celebration that we have studied so far in the feast that Jesus is the connection between the Old and New Testament. And so we see that they're celebrating. uh, It's the beginning of this final legacy to his own, to his close followers, the disciples. And throughout this passage, we're going to see several things that Jesus knows. And this is the first here we see in in, in verse 1. It says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. So that's the first thing of all what Jesus knows that we see throughout the passage. Jesus knows that his hour had come. He knows that this is the end. This is it. This is the last days or last really day and a half that he would get to spend with his disciples before the cross. And there are certain things that he would have to express and that they would need to come to some sort of understanding on. The final moments with his boys, with his closest followers. Interesting, though, to look at what Jesus does when he knows that there's so little time left. If we knew that our death was imminent within 48 hours, what would we do with that final amount of time that we had? Many of us perhaps would try our hardest to prevent the so-called imminent death. And that is certainly what we see going on in the world. Everybody is afraid of death. People are terrified of death. I've got good news and bad news. Death is imminent. It's going to happen. We are going to die. Every single person is going to die, unless we're raptured, which actually may be more realistic now today than ever, right? But we're going to die And trying to spend our lives preventing our death is is living in fear. The reality is this. Jesus set the example that you don't have to live in fear. He didn't live in fear. He didn't spend these final 48 hours in fear knowing that his death was coming. He set that example for us. And how, why did he set that example? Because of this, right? He knew that his hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father. He had no fear of death because he knew where he was going. And we too don't need to fear death because we know. If you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you know where you're going. That's what it's all about. So we don't have to spend our time here fearing death, trying to prevent death. Now, man, we're not going to be careless and try to bring on death, are we? No, that's a bad idea. But our focus should be in that of eternity, like Jesus. He knew that his hour had come. And with this final moments that he has, he sets this great example here of love. He knows where he's going, departing this world, going to the Father. He knows who he is. He knows where he came from. And we'll see that a little bit later on. But then it says that he loved his own. He sets the example of love and he demonstrates it. He already has so many times. 
And, he, and he's setting that example here through this washing of their feet of love and that love that comes through sacrifice and humility. And we're going to go further into this. But he loved his own. His own being his disciples, his followers. This love that was done through teaching, this love that was demonstrated through leading and carrying and, and just bringing them along for these last three and a half years. He demonstrated great love to them. He rescued them at various times from various situations. He fed them. He set the great example of love all along. But it's saying now that he having loved his own, he has done it, who were in the world. And there's a, there's a contrast here between his disciples and the world. We know that Jesus died for the world he loves the whole world, but there is a difference in the love relationship. Because in, when you have a relationship, that love is reciprocated. There's, there's an intimate relationship that Jesus has with his disciples that is different than the love with the whole world because there's a response. His own are those who yield themselves to him. And it says then that he loved them to the end. The end meaning to the fullest. To the fullest extent or to the, to the uttermost. That's what his love is. To the, to the fullest amount that there could ever possibly be. And, and then not only that, but then to the end. Not the end of his life. Not to this point and like, okay, that's the end. Now he's going to die and that's it. But that his love goes on. And here we are today still talking about and experiencing on a regular basis the love of Jesus Christ. And it will go on until the end. Speaking here of the completion of the work of love, this is what Christ is going to do. A complete outpouring of love through the cross. It's complete. It's to the fullest, and then it goes on forever. It truly will never end. And so then, that at supper being ended, in some translations, and you'll even see maybe in some of your Bibles, there's a footnote there and says some manuscripts uh, read in progress, right? That supper was still in progress. They were still lounging around the table. They were still enjoying the supper, the, the celebration, the feast here, and, and Judas, right? It points out the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. The devil had a foothold. And there's this interesting contrast. Why does it go from verse 1, talking about Jesus, talking about that he knew his hour had come, talking about the, the love that he has for his disciples and the outpouring of his love to the fullest. And Judas, supper had ended. And, and Judas is a problem. And I, I believe there's this contrast as John writes, it's because he's pointing out, the, he's giving us a picture of the scene and, and the contrast between the love of Jesus and the betrayal of Judas. After Jesus had poured so much in and then would pour out all of himself in bringing that fullness of love, but yet one of his own, Judas, had been under the influence of the devil. The devil had a stronghold in his life. 
It says that he put it into Judas's heart. He had an influence because Judas gave him an influence. Guys, listen, the devil will not get an influence in your life if you don't give him an influence in your life. The devil may influence things around you and cause things to go sideways sometimes because he's trying to pick you off and he's trying to mess you up. But he will not have influence in your life unless you give it to him. And sometimes that happens in ways that we don't always understand. Let's check this out. We just studied it a couple weeks ago in John chapter 12, verse 4 to 6. You could just flip back one page in your Bible. John 12, verse 4 to 6. After the anointing had happened, right, Mary poured out this oil on the feet of Jesus, washed the feet of Jesus. Then verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? But then this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. This gives us an indication of where things went sideways for Judas. Because we know the love of money is the root of all evil. This is an indication of that stronghold, the love of money. That's where the devil got the stronghold over Judas. And I'm sure it just happened very gradually. We, Judas didn't like, it wasn't like his whole life was nefarious, and then Jesus, you know, called him as a disciple. He's like, yes, I'm going to get him. But there was gradual things that had taken place, and, and money was clearly the thing that was pointed out to us, that he loved money. He used to take the money from the money box. Satan was in search of such a man. And he found this man in Judas and then put into his heart this betrayal. But it wasn't without the spiral. And this contrast we see between these first two verses, the heart of Christ and the heart of Judas. The heart of Christ is love. The heart of Christ, he was committed to the cross, fulfilling the command that we saw at the end of chapter 12, the command of the Father, which is eternal life. That's what Jesus was committed to. Eternal life. The heart of Judas is betrayal, full of wickedness, committed to turn his back on Jesus, committed to turn him in, following the influence of the devil, which is death. If the devil approached Judas and said, Aha, I've got something to offer you, it's death, we wouldn't sign up for that, would we? Right, devil comes and you know it shows up, and we somebody presents you. Hey, I'm going to give you death. All you have to do is sell out Jesus, who you've been following, who's who's given his life for you, and you just sell him out, and it's all good. And I'm going to give you death. It's great. We're like, no, but there's the false hope, and it goes all the way back to the beginning. There's the lie in the garden. Surely, you will not die, is what the serpent said. Surely you will not die. He's a liar. The first words out of his mouth is a lie. 
Surely you will not die. Surely you will die. But he was deceived. He believed a lie. He followed that influence, which is death. And then verse 3, we continue. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. This is another point here we, of what Jesus knows. Right? Remember I said that. We're going to keep seeing. What does Jesus know? Jesus knows the Father had given all things into his hands. This is repeated from John chapter 3, verse 35, where it says the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. And we see that. We, we see this unity between the Father and Son several times throughout the, the gospel here, and we've, we've talked about that many times. But now here, the Father had given all things, and it says that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. What makes this important? Remember what Jesus is about to do, washing their feet? The man who knows that the Father had given all things into his hands, and he knows that the hour is coming. So he knows his imminent death. He knows that he has all authority, yet he's going to wash the feet of the disciples. Jesus knows his authority and lays it down. Continues on then. And this is also what Jesus knows, that he had come from God and was going to God. So Jesus knows where he's from and where he's going. Jesus knows who he is. He knows his identity. Jesus knows that he is the son of God. He is the Messiah. And he has all authority and he knows he's going to the cross. All these things of what Jesus knows and yet he lays it all aside to wash the disciples' feet in preparation for ministry. Remember that Jesus was baptized at the start of his ministry. And now he's giving this example and he is washing the feet of the disciples in preparation for ministry, knowing his authority, knowing his identity, and laying it all down. He washes the disciples' feet not from a place of weakness, but in a, from a place of authority. And as he does, and, and this, is, this is beautiful how John lays it out for us. I get a picture of like this slow motion climactic movie scene or like the replay in, in sports that they're watching over and over and the announcer is giving this great you know, commentary on it. That's what John, John is giving a beautiful commentary on the washing of the feet of the disciples. And what is, so he continues, right? So it says that he's going to God. Jesus, knowing all of this, knowing his authority and knowing his identity, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. There's this like beautiful just play-by-play, step-by-step. He rose from supper. It was a place of rest. They would be reclined on the ground around a table. 
It was, it was low, you know, it wasn't like a table like we talk about today, and just everybody sits at a nice comfy chair. They are reclined, they're in a place of rest, and as they're celebrating and they're having supper together, it was a time to relax and to have great intimate fellowship, and he rose from supper, the place of rest. And then he laid down his garments. He put them aside. He laid down his garments, which what, what is he clothed in? He is clothed in righteousness, glory, authority. Clearly, we've seen that. And Jesus lays that all aside, laying aside his glory, his, his authority, his righteousness, his identity, laying it all aside. And then he took the towel and he girded himself. What does he do with that? He's preparing himself, and he's ready to do the work. He's taking care of all the detail. He is ready to do the work, preparing for the work, and ready to do the work, ready to get his hands dirty. He didn't just set an example, like, I'm going to wash your feet and like splash some water on them. Just as symbolic, hey, we're good. You guys get it? Okay, I don't feel like getting dirty. No, he gets dirty. He does the work. Then he took the towel, or then he poured the water. Demonstration of pouring out of himself, pouring out of his blood. This was all very calculated. And of course, this was a place of humility. He began to wash their feet. The humility of this, this was a job for the lowest servant. This was something that the lowest of all the servants would be given the job to wash the feet. They didn't have nice shoes that protected their feet like we do today. They would walk around in sandals or even barefoot if they couldn't afford sandals or they couldn't, you know, the, the sandals broke. And, you know, this is the reality. Their feet were disgusting. You know, we get our shoes dirty and we start crying about it. I don't know about you guys. I hate, like, wet feet, wet socks, the worst, Right? We're like, no, this is terrible. And then your, your shoes smell, and you're like, throw them in the garbage. This is their feet that have been walking around on the dirt roads and, you know, not nice grassy fields. or Like, they're just, I mean, these feet are messed up, calloused, nasty, ingrown nails, probably, you name it. I know, this is a great picture. I think of, like, hobbit feet, right? You know, just, whew, whole but that's, you see, Jesus, it wasn't just symbolism. It wasn't just an idea of doing the work. He prepared himself and girded himself to do the work and to actually get his hands dirty. And he washed their feet in humility, the job that the lowest servant would do. But in all of that, be reminded of what Jesus knows. Jesus knows the pain of imminent death that was coming, and the rejection that he would face. Jesus knows that this is the end. Jesus knows his own authority that has come from the Father, and Jesus knows his identity, where he's from, where he's going, who he is, the Son of God, the Messiah. This is all that Jesus knows, yet he washes the disciples' feet in love and in humility. He did the whole job. And he did it thoroughly, giving himself completely to this work. 
interesting thing is that Luke's gospel tells us that they were just, the disciples were just arguing over who would be greatest. Luke chapter 22, you don't have to turn there, verse 24, it says, Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. This is right in the same timeline of this upper room gathering. And there was a dispute among the disciples. Who would be the greatest? And what does Jesus do? I don't think it's ironic that this is how Jesus would demonstrate greatness. Jesus, and John identifies it, Jesus knowing his own greatness, he washed their feet. He demonstrates true greatness through humble servanthood to break down the disciples' understanding of greatness. He demonstrates what he's all about, to serve. So as we continue verse 6, then he came to Simon Peter. We love Simon Peter. We relate to Simon Peter doing and saying things before we think or thinking we've got it all figured out and then telling Jesus what to do. Jesus, this is how you should do things. Not a great idea. You, he's like, yeah, hey, whoa, hold on. <laughs> Time out, Jesus. Are you washing my feet? Peter identifying the fact that this is the servant's job and you're washing my feet? I should be washing your feet is the perspective. Peter thought that he had it all figured out. Peter thought perhaps this was a test and he was going to pass the test. And we've seen him do it before. We've seen him pass the test before. And then we've seen Jesus tell him, get behind me, Satan, right? He's, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. This is amazing. Praise, you know, like this is, Peter's like, yes. Peter walked on water. He passed the test. Then he sunk in the water. I mean, they're on the boat and they're all crying out. They're gonna lose their lives. And Jesus says, you have little faith. And Peter's like, I am not failing this test. You guys are going to let Jesus wash your feet? Are you kidding me? This is Jesus. Remember, he's the Christ, the son of the living God. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to me, but God has revealed this. He's like, yes, I'm that guy who has been, Jesus has been revealed to me. So you guys need to understand, follow my example. Jesus, you're washing my feet? How dare you guys let that happen? We wouldn't act so different, right, in pride of thinking that we've got it figured out, and we're gonna tell Jesus what to do. Peter thought he was gonna pass this test with flying colors. And, and then Jesus said, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will after this. Peter asking the question, thinking he's going to pass the test. Jesus, you're washing my feet? Hold on, time out. Jesus says, you don't understand, Peter, but you're gonna understand. Fast forward to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. It says this, Likewise, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Those are the words that Peter writes. To a suffering Christian. Clothe yourself with humility. Be submissive to one another. So I think it's safe to say that Peter did eventually understand. And that understanding comes out. Peter, he doesn't understand the whole work that had to be done, the cleansing that needed to happen. 
But Jesus says, you don't understand, but you will understand. And then Peter writing these words. As Jesus set the example of being clothed or girded with humility, as Jesus girded himself, Peter understood later on. And as perhaps as he wrote these words from 1 Peter, chapter 5, verse 5, perhaps as he's writing those words down, he's remembering as Jesus girded himself with humility and took on the servant's job. And Peter's saying, God resists the proud. I was that guy. I was the one who tried to stop Jesus from washing my feet in pride, thinking that I'm going to pass the test, that I am better than the rest of the disciples. And Jesus saying, no, Peter, you're wrong. But you will eventually understand. See, Peter eventually understands through various humbling experiences. And of course, most importantly, the example of Jesus. And you guys, that's what this is all about. This whole passage is about the example of Jesus. He wanted to teach his disciples what ministry looks like. He wanted to teach his disciples what, what servanthood looks like. Because it was more important that they understand servanthood than even that they understand all these deep theological answers. All, many of those things, they're all answered through the resurrection, aren't they? Right? They had a lot of questions about theology and scratching their heads trying to figure out what is Jesus talking about. Then the resurrection, like, oh, that's what he was talking about. But you see, what Jesus wanted them to, to know and to follow the example of is servanthood. But then Jesus says to him, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part, with, part of me. Peter needed the cleansing. Jesus is telling Peter, you need this cleansing. You need this example. You need to know what it looks like and experience what it looks like to be cleansed and washed and to then do the work. And Peter, needing that cleansing, as we need that cleansing, look, it doesn't matter how much we've done in the name of Jesus or how great we think we are. Remember who Peter is. He walked on water. We don't walk on water. We think we do sometimes, but we don't walk on water Peter was one of the closest followers of Jesus, and he thought, guys, I'm, I'm a good guy. But Jesus is saying, you don't have any part of me if I don't wash your feet. We need that same cleansing. No matter what we do in checking the boxes in the name of Jesus, or how great we think we are, we need cleansing. We need to be under the work of that cleansing from Jesus. And so then Peter, he might have thought that he was great, but Jesus said, you need that cleansing. We need to be cleansed by Jesus to have fellowship with Jesus. That's the prerequisite. That's really good news, guys. That is the prerequisite. Be cleansed, and that's how we come into fellowship. Be washed by Jesus he doesn't say to them, guys, you need to be more holy. You need to be more righteous. You need to have more knowledge. You need, to, you need to have all of the understanding. No, what he says to Peter is you will understand, but you need to be cleansed. 
Simply allow Jesus to cleanse you. But then, of course, Peter says, now, okay, if, you're gonna, if, if i got to be cleansed, then give me a bath. <laughs> the head, the hands, just wash me. Just wash me, right? First of all, I said it before. I'll say it again. Learn from Peter. Don't tell Jesus what to do. This is very basic Bible understanding right here, guys. Don't tell Jesus what to do. Peter learned many times, don't do it, man. It's a bad idea. When we start telling Jesus what to do, we get things all mixed up. He's like, no, wash me, all of me. Wash my head, wash my hands, wash my feet. Second, recognize that the work that Jesus does is enough. You see, the feet were enough because that was the work that Jesus did. The work of Jesus is enough, and that's what he demonstrates. And as Peter's like, come on, wash all of me, it's not necessary. Only the feet were needed because that's the work that Jesus was doing. Jesus didn't listen to Peter like, oh, all right, Peter, yeah, come on, let's just, let's just give you a bath, you know, because it'll appease you, it'll make you feel better about yourself. No. The work that Jesus did was enough. The feet were enough. The cross was enough. The resurrection was enough. We don't need anything else added to it because the work that Jesus does is enough. And Jesus, of course, would not be instructed by Peter on servanthood and cleansing and love and humility I mean, this is what Jesus is doing. He's giving the example. He's pouring out of himself. He's showing his disciples, preparing his disciples. And then Peter tries to instruct him. And he's like, no, Peter, I know you don't. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm talking about. He wouldn't be instructed on servanthood. He wouldn't be instructed on love. And Jesus in his work does enough. And then, and then we shift gears then again a little bit as Jesus identifies Judas without specifically identifying Judas. Right in verse, um, verse 10, Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but he is completely clean and you are clean, but not all of you. He's not talking about the whole body, not all of you, but he says in verse 11, for he knew who would betray him there. Another thing. Now, Jesus knows, but yet he didn't kick Judas out. Jesus knows he's going to betray him. As he knows his hour has come, as he knows he's going to face this pain of death and rejection, as he knows his authority, he lays down his authority, as he knows his identity and lays down his identity, he also knows that Judas is going to betray him, and he's right there. And he doesn't say to the disciples, guys, he's going to betray me, get him. That's what we would do because we are so caught up in preventing our imminent death. If we knew we're going to be betrayed by somebody who's right in front of us, we'd be like, that's the guy. Let's get him. You know Simon Peter would have been ready. Clearly, we see that later on in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was ready with his little knife drawn. But Jesus knew, and he didn't do anything about that. But he identifies, he says, not all of you. You are not all clean. 
as he's washing their feet and there's a physical cleansing that's going on, he's identifying the fact that there is not a spiritual cleansing going on in one of you. The difference between being transformed through that cleansing, to actually be cleaned, or just being a whitewashed sepulcher. Looks good. Judah's feet were cleaned. He walked around, they were maybe, maybe they were cleaner than anybody else's. They were shining. And they looked good, smelled good, maybe felt good. He got his little pedicure. But he wasn't cleansed. Because that cleansing from Jesus needs to be inside and out. So verse 12. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? Now this is like the teacher has given the lesson and now here's the quiz. Pop quiz. Do you, here's, answer the questions. Were you paying attention in class? So Jesus sits down with them and he gives them this quiz, but not without explanation at the same time. In his mercy, he gives the explanation. But all throughout we've seen what Jesus knows. And Jesus knows all that's gonna happen and yet he lays it all down to wash the disciples' feet. And then he asks the disciples, do you know? Do you know what I have just done? And he gives explanation then. He says, look, beyond being teacher, you call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. But beyond being teacher, if then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Follow the example. He sets the example, and he makes it so clear. And there's even this little uh, misunderstanding, and he makes it clear. But then he says, now follow the example. Do it. He asks the question, do you know? Here's the explanation. Beyond being teacher and Lord, do it. Follow my example. And what is that example? Servanthood. Humility. Love compassion. Follow the example. This is the essential of studying scripture. Do it. Apply the Bible, apply the word of God to your life. As James says, not to be hearers only, but doers of the word. Follow his example of love, to walk in love, of humility and walking in humility, of being cleansed and of serving one another. Be a blessing to one another. Because, as he says, he goes on, right? And he says, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. Jesus, is he's the master, 
and the servant is not greater than the master. And in, in reality, what he's saying is like what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, to submit to one another, because no one is greater than the other. And if Jesus, the master, could do it, then so can you, so can I, and so should we follow that example. Jesus is an example in both attitude and in action. His heart and mind were in agreement. But it's not just in theory. It wasn't just Jesus saying, hey, wash one another's feet. He did it, and then he said, now you do it. And as he closes it, he says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you know it, do it. If you understand the scripture, follow through. Follow the example of Jesus. There's some things in the Bible that are very, very clear to us. We should do it. We should follow the example. When we see, like, do not be afraid, we should not be afraid. Walk by faith, we should walk by faith. It's some very simple, clear instruction. And there's a lot of things that are not as clear, but this is very clear. Jesus says, hey, you saw what I just did, right? Do it. Do it to one another. And let that attitude, not just action, but attitude, bringing agreement between your heart and mind, and then doing it. Keep doing it. And they would. We would see them then serve the body of Christ, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and then, and then the church explodes through the work of the Holy Spirit through the disciples. And Jesus says, be a blessing to one another. And as you do that, you will be blessed. Be blessed and be a blessing through love, through humility. Being cleansed, and following the, the example of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. We thank you so much, Father, for your word and for the truth. That we can be confident in the truth. And so we desire more of you. Lead us in your ways and draw us closer to you, God. We trust you. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus today, we talked about how that's, that is the start and that is where there's this, this intimacy, there's this love relationship that we can have with Jesus that sets us apart from the world. Because that love, we give a response. That love, it changes us, it transforms us so that we could follow the example of Jesus Christ in serving one another in humility in love toward one another. This is very contrary to the way of the world, humility. But it is the example that Jesus set. And it is the greatest example of love. And we have a world around us that people try to identify what love is without knowing who love is. It's Jesus. He is the example. He is the outpouring. He is the manifestation of the love that God has.
And when we enter into a relationship with him, we experience this love in such a great way because it changes us. We allow it to change us. So would you allow it today? The love of Jesus Christ, would you allow it to change you? And if you don't yet have a relationship with him, would you enter into relationship? Understanding that that love has been poured out through Jesus and his death on the cross, through his resurrection from the dead. That love is that he took your place because the Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages, that's what we deserve because we are all sinners. The Bible tells us that in Romans, that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there's hope in Jesus Christ. So I invite you today, if you don't yet have that relationship with Jesus Christ, having been or have, are being transformed by his love and grace, Would you pray this simple prayer and say, dear Jesus, would you come into my life? I confess that I'm a sinner. And I believe in you. I believe you are who you say you are. I believe you're the son of God. I believe you died and you rose, rose from the grave to give me the gift of eternal life. I desire to live for you. Would you come into my life and be the Lord of my life? In Jesus' name, amen.